All right. Um, so we're doing things a little differently. Obviously, we're a bit smaller um, this morning, but we are continuing our series uh, looking at the Trinity. And I'll just encourage each of you, if you're, if you're visiting us or if you haven't uh, been with us in weeks previous in this series, it's really important to go back and uh, catch up because each sermon in this series really hangs together. And it's really important to kind of get the comprehensive whole of everything that's happening when we look specifically at the Christian doctrine of God as Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the idea that these aren't contradictory things, that God is one yet three. And we've been looking at God being one but three persons. So the thing that we've been talking about is that God is one in the what, in, in what he is his essence, but three in who, in personhood, right? So we've been looking like all of us in this room, we are all human beings. That describes what we are, but we are all different people. We are all different persons. That describes who we are. And we were looking specifically at the Trinity and how the Trinity changes literally everything we think about God. It changes everything we know about Christian teaching. It changes everything we know about the gospel. The work of the gospel, the Christian claim is that the work of the Trinitarian God, God the Father rescuing orphans in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. That the gospel literally is the work of the Trinity saving and rescuing people to relationship with the Trinity. It's very, very important. So today as we look at the Son of God, this could have been a 52-week sermon. And here at Reach Montreal, we make a lot about Jesus. We talk about Jesus every week. But this is specifically today looking at Jesus as the Son within the Trinitarian community. What does it mean for God the Son? Who is Jesus really? So let me ask you and start with that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? What's the first kind of image or quality that comes to mind when you think about Jesus? Now, Jesus is a fascinating, just historical person. There's more songs sung and written to Jesus, more books written about Jesus, more paintings painted of Jesus than any other figure in human history. Our time and space and calendar literally revolves around Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's literally the center point of all of history. But when that happens, there's lots of different versions of who Jesus is that can kind of float around. And what's really fascinating about this is that Jesus actually asks his disciples that exact question in Matthew 16. He turns to his followers and he says, who do you say that I am? Not, not, not what are they saying about me? What is everybody thinking about me? Let's sit in a circle and share thoughts about everyone thinking things about me. He says, who do you say that I am? That's an important question, and it's just as important today as it was 2,000 years ago. Because your answer to that question and mine actually determines everything else about our life. If Jesus is just a religious figure, a helpful religious teacher, or a moral soothsayer, then that changes things. Are you with me on that? If, if Jesus is just kind of a flip-flop model and a beard oil advocate, or he's just kind of a Jewish figure for the Jews... That changes everything we think about Jesus, does it not? But if we answer the question of who do we say Jesus is by saying that he isn't just a wise teacher. He's not just a miracle worker or a magician. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a revolutionary, but that he is Christ. He is Messiah. He is son of God. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the only mediator between humanity and God. Now that radically changes everything. Are you with me on that? So this question, who do you say Jesus is, is of utmost importance. And it's not just a question for religious people. This is a question 
that actually hangs everything else that we know about life. Our entire worldview, our morality, everything we believe about relationships and romance and sexuality and here and now and eternity and forever and heaven and hell and judgment and wrath and forgiveness and redemption, everything hangs on who do you say that Jesus is. So it's a radically important question. So we're going to look at a passage. I almost split this up into a couple sermons because there's just so much to say about Jesus as the Son of God. But here's what we're going to do. Colossians 1. We're going to look at one of the most concentrated set of verses about who Jesus is. About who he actually is. All right? So watch this. Colossians 1, verse 12 through 14. Always thanking the Father. So watch this. The Trinity is already at work here, right? Always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us, Jesus, from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. So right away, it's really important to see that that's a Trinitarian thing. That the work of the Trinity involves God as Father giving thanks to him for redeeming us and rescuing us from a domain of darkness. Blindness, darkness, we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. But the Father lovingly, and remember last week in this series, the Father lovingly comes and, and pursues rebels. Rebels that think that we can live life for ourselves without him. And rebels that think that we can live our life using religion to save us. That the Father sends the Son. And that this work of the gospel is the Father's kingdom, the Son of God, the heir to his throne, coming and rescuing those who don't have any claim to the throne. So it's not contradictory for us to say that the Trinity is central to Christian belief and to say at the same time that it, we are Christ-centered. To say that as a church we are Christ-centered is to say that we are always about the work of the Trinity. Amen? Because to describe Jesus as the Son of God is to immediately put him in the status of Son to the Father. And to show that he is anointed and the heir to the kingdom by the Spirit. It's a work of the Trinity. To speak of Jesus as the Son or the Christ or the Anointed One, we're speaking of his relationship with Father and Spirit. It's very important. The Apostle Paul goes on and he describes what this means. Verse 15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. We're going to come back to that. Underline that, double tap it if you're looking. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. These are claims, right? These are big claims. To through, for through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth, everything that was made. He made the things that we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms, rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed, Jesus Christ, existed before anything else. And he holds all creation together. Now, there's a couple key things here. If you and I sit and approach Jesus and say, Jesus never claimed to be God. This is just kind of like an invention of the Constantinian era. And we just like played with scripture and came up with this thing. We are historically false about that. Jesus repeatedly emphatically stresses that he himself existed before all things and that he came into space-time, into human history as a man but fully God to save all men and women. 
So we don't have the option to play postmodern, enlightened, Western thinking about Jesus is just like an option on the marketplace of options, and I'm just going to choose what's best for me to consume religious goods and then make up my own spirituality, sip a green tea, macchiato, whatever those are, right? Pumpkin spice, you know who you are, and, and then just like be spiritual. Because this claim is either true and it changes everything, or it's false and it changes absolutely nothing. You and I, who follow Jesus as Son of God, as God in flesh, we're the most pitied of all people if this is not true. And the key word, you notice how Paul starts, he said he's the image, the visible image of an invisible God. The visible image of an invisible God. Now, the Greek word there is really important. The word for image is an icon. It's a representation. Sometimes it's used to describe a portrait. So this claim in Colossians was is that Jesus is not just like God. He's not just a teacher of God. He's not just kind of helpful principles that leads us to self-fulfillment and with a godness kind of sprinkled on top. But that Jesus is actually the portrait of God. If you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. You want to know what God sounds like? It, it's Jesus. I'm going to know how God works and what God does. It's, it's Jesus. He's the image. Now, right away, where does your mind go when you hear the word image? Right back to the very first verses of Scripture in Genesis, the image-bearing quality of human being. Now, this is important because back in Genesis, we say that this God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in loving community makes male and female human beings the same in what they are but different in who they are to reflect who? Well, him. To reflect God. And they're called image bearers. Now that's, that's both a royal title and a representative title. Meaning that human beings, you and I are created for God, by God, to reflect what God is like in and through how we relate to creation. That's what we're made for. So that, ergo, what follows is that if we live for anything other than that, we will feel an angst and a dissatisfaction. That we, you are actually created to know God and to take care of everything that God has given you. And you and I will answer for what we've been given. The accounts will balance out at the end. And in Genesis, we know that things break down. With me on that? Look at the world right now. Things break down. Things are broken down. So rather than live under the rule of God as image bearers and represent him and reflect him to the world, we end up pursuing independence from God instead of living dependent on God. We choose self-rule over God's rightful rule. We believe the lie of the garden that God can't be trusted. We believe the lie in the garden that we can pursue satisfaction for ourselves, and God has no idea what he's talking about. Sin enters the picture like that. So what do we do? Well, we end up imaging ourselves after other things. You and I every day are building an image for ourselves. You understand that, right? And not just online. Like, I know we do that online. It's just like, look how great of a parent I am. My kids never set the house on fire, right? Like, look how great of a coworker I am. Look how amazing of a friend I am. Look how great my makeup looks, right? Like, it's just constantly we're creating an image of ourselves, a persona, a personality. All of us every day are putting together a glorious image of ourselves. But when we're honest, and our head hits the pillow at night, we know that that's not true. We know that we're always manufacturing something about us that is not true. 
We're actually trying to form an identity based off of other things. We're pursuing non-gods to try to build an image off of those non-gods, looking to them to give us what only God can. And the most marvelous thing about the God of Scripture and history is that he's not a killjoy. That's the thing. He's not a killjoy. He's not here to, like, crush all of the fun. Like, remember two weeks ago when we looked at the Father, religious people, grumpy. Grumpy. They don't know how to have fun. They don't know how to just bask in the glorious celebration of who God is. God's not a killjoy. But he does redeem everything that we deem worthy of our joy. He does redeem and renew all of the things that we give ourselves over to. And if we give ourselves over to non-gods, they will only crush us. And we see that throughout the pages of history. We see that throughout the pages of the Bible. That that first lie in the garden leads us to live for other things that ultimately disappoint and crush us. And we rebel against God even though what we need truly more than anything is God. That's the story of scripture. Uh, David Foster Wallace, one of my favorite kind of just novelists of the last era. Uh, he, he died by suicide a few years ago. And he wrote this. Listen, this is, not a, this is not a believer reflecting on life. This is a non-believer who never professed faith in Christ. Listen to what he says about life today. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. David Foster Wallace is reflecting on something that is just so true that you and I will worship. We are created to worship. The question is, how will we image ourselves? And what sin is in the Bible, it's a rejection of our image-bearing status and our job description. It's our decision to pursue freedom from God and in non-gods. And the result is that Sin dethrones God, it enthrones self, and in the process of that tragic exchange, both God and self are devalued. And the gospel flips all of that right on its head. When we overvalue the wrong things, Christ enters in and shows us what is right. When we live our life for non-gods, Jesus comes into human history to show us who God is. Because since the fall, since the garden, we've been running out around outside the garden, just looking for freedom and life and building our identity on things that are silenced by death. I don't care how cute your house is, how nice your fence is, how much money you make, what, how, what make your car is. All of those things are rendered meaningless by death. All of them. But the triune God reveals himself and pursues broken image bearers and draws them to himself to save them and restore them by doing what? By showing up as the image of the invisible God. The only one true image bearer of who God is. So now we don't need to live up to a standard. We don't need to have that because Christ is that for us. It changes everything. So how does he do it? Well, by entering into human history, 
So the Christian idea of God is not that God just kind of sits far off, disappointed in his children with his arms crossed, but that he actually sends himself. He enters into human history. He comes to us to be like us, to show us who we are truly made to be. And he's the only one that can do it. That Jesus perfectly images God the Father. That, that, that to, to father like son is true of Jesus and not of you and I. That Jesus truly is the chip off the old block, right? That he is exactly like the Father. Two examples of this quickly, okay? Because we got to get this. We have to understand this. This claim is so important. In Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 3, we see a really amazing text about this portrait again. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, first of all, that messes up all your eschatology, because this was 2,000 years ago, and they were already in the last days. Different topic. I'm with you. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now watch this. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Yep, he does. Yep, okay. We'll do that. Okay. This is amazing because what Hebrews just said is that he is the exact imprint, which in Greek is the seal. Like, so you know when you go in a wax seal and you print something in, he's the imprint of God's nature. And Jesus shows up and says things like, I and the Father are one, which is blasphemy according to ancient Jewish teaching. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. These are not claims that you can just dismiss as opinions about Jesus. These are radically universal, objective truth claims about the nature and character of God. One more example in John 1, same thing. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. A few verses later, and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. That's the word tabernacled. He became the temple, the true temple. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that's good news, that this God is full of grace and truth, amen? Who needs a little bit of grace? Who needs a little bit of truth to combat the lies on Facebook right now? Who needs a little bit of acceptance when we know we can't be accepted? Who needs a little bit of value when we, when we just went and gave ourselves to things this week and tried to build an identity on things that crushed us? Who needs that? I do. That's this God. That's the God who enters in. It's the God who is, who is the word. Now John uses that word in, in Greek philosophy. It's logos. And logos is literally the consciousness of everything that is. Like it's the very essence of all things. This is a bold claim. That he's presence and essence of God. That he's God's incarnation. That he is God come to us because we cannot get to him on our own. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the work of the son of God. Now, Apostle Paul continues and he says another thing that's really important. And then we'll kind of like apply this and push it in. But it says, he says he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, this is really important because this has led to some erroneous teachings, some false teachings around who Jesus is. This doesn't mean that he's the first created thing. Because obviously what we've seen is the claim is that Jesus is not created. Jesus is born, but he's not created. Jesus is, he existed long before, and then he is born. That's very different. Now, also, the firstborn aspect also 
refers to language of royalty and the heir of something. In Psalm 89, in the Old Testament, we see another prophecy. Steve read another one from Isaiah 53. But in Psalm 89, it talks about the coming Messiah in the future. And it says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. That's a royal term. That's a claim about this king who is going to come, who's going to be the king of all kings. He's going to be the heir of all creation. And the word there is actually prototoko. Say prototoko. It's a fun word. And it's where we get the English word prototype. It says that Jesus is literally the prototype of all things that are. He's the blueprint of what it means to be an image bearer of God. That's, that's amazing. That's so powerful. And it says that before all things, he was there. Why? Because he's the blueprint. He's the very word of God. He's consciousness itself. He's the essence and presence of God. And he says that he's before all things. Meaning that he's first in essence, order, and design. That Jesus is born, not created. That he pre-existed before he entered into creation, born as a Jewish baby in Bethlehem. Now here's why this is important. Because it means that there was a nev never ever a time when the Father, the Son, and the Spirit did not exist in perfect love and community together. It's very powerful. Never a time. There wasn't a new idea, it wasn't a plan B. Just like, oh, I don't know, I guess, okay, we'll do it through this G Jesus guy who's, who's a Jew, we'll just do that. No, 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 plan A was always God, the Son, God, the Word, God, the Logos is going to enter in and rescue men and women from themselves. And rescue us from rebelling against the God who loves us and desires us. And rescue us from sin that ultimately only gives us the inheritance that we work for, which is death. It's always been the plan from the beginning. Now here's why this is important. Anybody heard of the Nicene Creed? Nerds. But it came out of a council. <laughs> it came out of a council called the Council of Nicaea. And that was in 325 AD. And what that was was over 300 leaders from all over the globe met to get clarity on who Jesus is. Now they didn't make up this doctrine. It was already very clearly taught and claimed about by Jesus himself and by the early church. But they got together because they were actually responding to false teachings about Jesus. So they're like, let's get together. Let's, let's do this. One of the leaders of this was St. Nicholas. So before he was delivering presents with his beard, he was fighting heresy. <laughs> Amen. That's what we should celebrate at Christmas. You with me? The first gift of St. Nick was to respond to the heresy of Arianism. Right? So they were actually responding to Arius who was teaching that Jesus was not co-equal with God. That he proceeded from God and that when he was born, he kind of became like God. But the church got together and said, no, no, but we can't, we can't claim that because Jesus doesn't. Jesus claims that he was, he was actually pre-existent. That he's always been with the Father. That he's always been with the Spirit. That he's always been. That he's the reason, he's the rhyme and reason by which everything is. He's the reason why everything was created. So they got together and they crafted this document. And listen to what it says. Sometimes you just got to go back, right? Because they say it better. There's one Lord Jesus Christ. The only Son of God. Begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God begotten, meaning born, not made, of the same essence as the Father, and through him all things were made. Oh yeah, they nailed that. But they had to respond to this, because the false teaching of, well, Jesus is kind of like God, or when he was born, he became God, or maybe like when he got baptized, that's when he got like his godness. It's not true. 
It's not biblically true, it's not historically true. And it's not what Jesus claimed about himself. And so they did that to respond to this. And now notice the language of son. This is really important because sometimes we don't really know what to do with that. We're like, okay, the son of God, but the father, and then the father's there, and the son's on the cross, and then the father's like beating the son up with death on the cross, and it's, it gets really, really messy. And then you don't understand what that actually means and what that looks like. The sonship of Jesus stresses two things. Sum it all up. Number one, it means that he does reflect his dad. It means that in nature and character, who he is and what he's like, it reflects his dad. That's, that's the first thing. But secondly, it's royal language. It's kingly language. All throughout the Old Testament, we don't have time, but all throughout the Old Testament, it's talking about a coming king who is going to come, who's going to be the king, who's going to reign forever. And not, not just like a king who does a good job and points the nation to the Lord, but he's going to be the king who's going to come. The coming Messiah, this true king, will reign not just over Israel, not just be the new David, but be the very son of God. The very royal heir to the th one who has the throne over all things. And he's going to show up in flesh. He's going to show up in human history. He's going to show up and he's going to not just be for Israel, but he's going to be first for the Jews and then for everyone else too. It's going to be a brand new kingdom, a brand new king, a universal reality where people are invited to live under the rule, the, the good, gracious, loving, truthful rule of this king. That's what son of God means. That's why John, when he writes his gospel, right at the end of the gospel, I love when writers tell you why they wrote you, right? It's very helpful. He says, so that, I wrote all this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that you may have life in his name. Why is that stressed there? Well, because even in Rome, the title Son of God was given to Caesar. It was given to Caesar as an incarnation of Zeus. So this was very familiar to the ancient context. They knew what it meant when someone claimed to be the Son of God. And when Jesus shows up and says, I am the Son of God, I am the Lord, guess what he was saying? Well, Caesar is not. And neither is any other earthly king. Neither is any other earthly ruler. And guess who else isn't? You. And me. That he is the image of God. And the Old Testament has like this long story of a whole bunch of kings who fail, right? And it finally brings us to the king who is not going to fail. The image of God. The son of God. With an earthly throne. That points more to his majestic eternal throne. But his throne looks like the cross. Not some big gold chair. And we see this king doing things so differently. And that God the son, the second person of the trinity... He has always been doing what he always will be doing. And that's the good news of this. He's always been working. And again, we don't have time. But I, uh, I did my doctoral work in the Old Testament. And there's things called theophanies. Anybody heard that word? Nerds. Theophanies are when God shows up in human history. Right? Like, and you're kind of like, that's not, okay, well, that's not like just... The Shekinah glory of God. That's like the Lord. Like the angel of the Lord is here, right? Jacob like wrestles with God in flesh. You're like, who the heck is that? Well, Jesus Christ, the son of God. He's always been doing what he's always going to be doing. He's always been revealing himself to human history. Those are pre-incarnations of the incarnated God, right? So he's always been doing this. This isn't new. And Israel was, was, was showing, just kind of giving trickles over history to say that one day, the day is going to come when the king is going to arrive, and he's going to do the thing that we're all waiting for God to do to fix and rescue sinners. And so Paul says, by him, through him, and for him, all things were created. Now here's the good news about this. 
Here's what this means. That your life and mine is not about you and it's not about me. That the world doesn't revolve around you. That your perspectives and your preferences and your cultural moment and your postmodern views of truth don't actually determine objective reality. You with me on that? This claim is that Jesus himself determines objective reality. Again, we got to wrestle with that claim. Because that is either radically true or radically false and we got to move on. But the good news is that it's true and that God has revealed himself in it and that everything exists to point to his beauty. Everything. Everything can be enjoyed for the glory of the Son of God, to the glory of Christ's name. This changes everything because as a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, this means that that's not true just here. You with me on that? When we're singing song, we're praying, we're doing a spiritual thing, it's true everywhere we are. That he's preeminent over all things. He's, it's true in your marriage. It's true in who you truly are in the dark when no one else sees you. That Jesus is still Lord and supreme over that. That he is Lord over your money. That he is Lord over your house. That he is Lord over every relationship that you have. It's not just here. The church has forgotten that because we make this an experience of who God is. And then we go out there and we lose our minds. We don't even know what we're doing. But he's supreme over all things. That's good news. The Dutch reformer, Abraham Kuyper, said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, doesn't say, mine. That means that we have a different power. That means that we have a different mandate. That means that we have a different mission because the mission of the church, Reach Montreal, is to go out and declare the sovereignty of God everywhere you are. the church was doing that, Montreal would, would not know what to do with herself. The city would never be the same. As a follower of Jesus, this shifts our focus to this kind of, this little thing, this little microcosm of who God is and where God is. It brings our eyes, it lifts our eyes up. It means that everything can be done to the glory of God. The little things, the very little things, the things that we don't see as significant, in some way they point to the glory of God. And Paul continues, I'm going to run out and second service is not going to happen. That's what's going to happen. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now still see the shift, right? The shift is going from all creation to now you and me, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I love that word. We're going to come back to it. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile, bring back to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now that key word preeminent is really important for you and I because often church, if we're honest, Jesus is prominent but he's not preeminent. You with me on that? Our budget is, our buildings are, our programs are, how good our kids' church is, how much the pastor sweats, your personal preferences, some niche or like hobby horse theology or just in life, our comfort, our security, our, our cute family end up preeminent. We live for those things. And we're back to a destructive image-bearing relationship with God. But he's, but he's preeminent. He's not just prominent. That the mission of the church is, is Christ's preeminence everywhere that we are. So let me ask you. Is Jesus first to you everywhere you are? Is he preeminent? Or is he just kind of optional, secondary? We kind of like we consult him, you know, so our secretary when we need a little pick-me-up. We need like a super colossal spiritual breakthrough. It's like, Jesus, throw me one, would you? 
No, that's not preeminence. I'm preeminent in that scenario. And so often our life is just full of preeminence of other things. Our families, our jobs, where we live, our marriages, our time, our conversations, pleasures that we think are worth our life, eating, playing, what we watch, what we don't watch, what we listen to, what we don't listen to, music, art, everything. Is Christ preeminent over everything? Every area of your life and mine. Because all things are being redeemed by his work on the cross. That's where Paul ends, right? You see where he ends there? He says that, that the Son of God, uniquely, not the Father, not the Spirit, but it's the Son of God who dies on the cross. You with me on that? So sometimes we pray, we're like, oh, Father, thank you for dying on the cross. And you're like, oh, wait, what? It's the Son that dies on the cross. It's the blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, fully man, fully God on the cross, who is doing the work to purchase and redeem us back to the Father. Romans 5, 8 says it, it says, but God shows his love, demonstrates his love, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is a God who dies, that, that freely, willingly enters in death and through it to show us that the thing that ultimately will silence every other thing we live for doesn't have power over him. That's good news. So hear this, hear this. What is inevitable for you and I Death. Inevitable for you and me. God freely chooses to enter into and go through. That's a God that deserves worship. You with me on that? That is a God who deserves all glory. That is a God who deserves our whole life. Because he's willing, freely offers himself. So what does the cross accomplish for us? And that's what we want to end with and just kind of apply. Well... First Timothy says that there's one God and there's one mediator, one go-between, between God and humanity, and it's the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for us. By doing what? Going through death. And you gotta, you gotta, you gotta understand, we gotta be good students of scripture, amen, but we gotta be good students of culture too, because I'll tell you right now, in our hyper-individualistic, godless culture, free of all moral absolutes, and transcendent meaning. You know what we end up doing? We end up shrugging our shoulders in the face of death and we just kind of embrace it as a part of life. Why? Because, well, we're just highly evolved animals and death is just the end, you know? Well, God shows up and says, no. No, 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 it's not. It's actually the most unnatural thing. It's not natural at all. It's the most unnatural, disruptive thing to everything that's good. Everything you and I do in this life that could be counted as good will be disrupted and silenced by death. Our current cultural moment can't give us an answer for that. And they never will because they don't know the God who answers death. Now there's power to that. That's why the gospel is good news. So church, hear me. Rather than see death just as it is and make peace with death and avoid making eye contact with it throughout our whole life and just settle for the good life here and now, thank God Jesus doesn't. Thank God that this, this God actually looks death straight at, in the face for what it is. And rather than shrug his shoulders at death, Jesus takes it as the intrusion that it, that it is. Steps into it, takes it on himself, and then offers peace by his work on the cross. That's exciting. That's good news. Uniquely, this God gives us peace with the Father. Uniquely, we are fully empowered by the Holy Spirit, by the work on the cross. Uniquely, faces death heads on. He, 
leaves it powerless, and then empowers us and gives us freedom from it. It's the most true claim that could ever be uttered by human lips. And it's all to the glory of God because it was always his idea. <laughs> That's the good news of the gospel. So here's what we're going to do. I had more because I always have more. But here's what we're going to do. On the day that Jesus was publicly executed, nailed to the cross above his head read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Now they didn't do that to acknowledge him as the king. <laughs> they did that to mock him and his claim about being the king. So understand that today in our kind of postmodern thing, to just say that Jesus never claimed that, we're going against what Jesus did say, we're going against what the Romans executed him for, and we're going against what the Jews saw him do and called it blasphemy because he claimed equality with God. And the Romans couldn't have another king because Caesar was king, you with me? So they put this sign to mock him. And what that was, it was a Roman public record of the crime. So when someone was crucified, they'd put what they did just above their head. So as you walk by and you could spit on them, you could utter, utter you know, curses at them, you could see what they were convicted for. Jesus' crime was that he claimed to be the king. <laughs> and when the, in the first century, when a debt was owed, there was a certificate of debt made. And it, and it was that. And that afternoon, on the cross, God in flesh, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus of Nazareth, wasn't paying a debt to Caesar for his crimes against the empire. He was canceling the debt against every man and woman to offer freedom from the power and penalty of sin. He was doing the only thing that is capable of changing sin-sick hearts and restoring our image-bearing capacity so that we would truly experience life. That's what he was doing. And what's so crazy about this is when a debt was paid in full in the Roman Empire, an ancient receipt kind of thing, you know those things we don't keep anymore, right? They would mark a word on it and it would be paid in full. It would be finished. That's what it would be done on the receipt. And the word is te telestai. Say te telestai. Yeah, yeah, let it roll off those masks. Mm. And as Jesus breathes his last breath, one word falls off his lips and guess what it is? Te telestai. It is finished. The debt is paid. The son of God has done what he has done what he has always planned to do and what we are only ever always gonna sing about in the future. We're, we're all going to, at some point, bow a knee and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Some of us will do it because he's our savior and others of us will do it because he's our judge. When it, when, when it says that Jesus is before all things and he's the end goal of all things, it means that it doesn't matter where you come from, how old you are, what your cultural background is, what your religious preferences are, there is gonna come a day where your lips will utter that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the invitation is to look at this God on the cross and to acknowledge that he didn't stay there and that he actually rose and silenced the power of death and that the invitation to us is that we can come, that he actually came to get us and that the invitation is to come and acknowledge him for who he is. And when you and I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, we're only confessing what is all, always and already true. And the night before his crucifixion, the night before he is executed, Jesus leaves his disciples with an image, right? With the Last Supper. He leaves them with the bread and he leaves them with the wine as a tangible way to celebrate and remember who this God is and what this God has done. Because he promises that he's not done. 
that this is just a foretaste of what's to come. And here we are in the in-between, right? We're in the in-between, the world between the worlds of this already being true of all things, but us working it out and God working it out through the church. And in Matthew 26, here's what he says about these elements. That's how we're going to close together, okay? So if you, um, if you are a follower of Jesus, these elements are for you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus and today is the day, we invite you. We invite you. But this is very important because this is actually only, we cannot celebrate something that we have not experienced. You with me on that? Communion is for us because we've already experienced and tasted the work of the cross. We've already experienced the, the life and the resurrection power of this God. And so he looks at his disciples that night and here's what he says. Now as they were eating, it was the Passover, big deal. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it like his body would be the next morning. And he gave it to the disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body. And then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink of it all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And watch this, I love this. This is the foretaste aspect. I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit, of the vine, until that day when I drink of it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The work of the Trinity. Again, right there on display, Jesus was about to do what needs to be done to bring sinners back to him. And what Jesus does with these elements, with the bread and the cup, is that everything that is true about the first Passover and rescuing slaves and giving them freedom, he's saying that this is the Passover to end all Passovers. This is the freedom offered once and for all, for all people who come to trust me. This is the true exodus from slavery and sin. So let me ask you, as we turn our attention to take the elements, who do you say that Jesus is? It is the most important question you and I will ever answer. And it's the climax of human history. It's where everything is going. That Jesus is the Son of God. That he is fully God, that he is fully man, that he is the true heir of God in the Father's kingdom. So let's celebrate that now. Let me pray for the bread. Father, Father in heaven, you didn't leave us as your image bearers off just to run around and image after other things and give our life to other things, but you came to us. And you did that by taking on flesh. Not by floating around like a spirit, not by floating around like a ghost, not by giving us myths and fairy tales, but you actually entered into human history as the God-man, fully man, fully human, yet fully God, Jesus Christ. So we acknowledge that and we celebrate that and we remember that with this bread. And we take it because it is the body that reconciles us back to you. And we just say thank you, Father, for this. In Jesus' name. Let's take the bread. Let me pray for the cup. Father, we don't want to shrug at the seriousness of brokenness. You're not a God who just looks away from brokenness and suffering and pain and death. You are a God that enters into it, even by shedding your blood on the cross. So we acknowledge that you are a God who draws near, that you truly empathize with us so that we know you and you understand everything that we are going through right now. 
We thank you for being a God who is present and not distant. And that you actually do it tangibly by showing up and showing us your love. So we take this cup as a reminder of that and we ask that your blood would give us life as you shed your blood to give us life on the cross. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's take the cup. And now we get to celebrate and sing this reality with our masks on. <laughs> Somebody texted me this week, how are we going to take communion if we have a mask on? Well, you can take it off to take communion. It's okay. But we're going to celebrate that now. I just want to encourage you, if you want to talk, you want to connect, you want to pray, we can do that. I want to do that. This is far too important for us to leave today and not gaze upon the work of the Son and the power of the gospel. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have done a work for us on our behalf because you love us. Because you are after us, that you pursue us, that you redeem us and you rescue us. We ask that even now as we sing and celebrate that, that spirit, you would apply it to our heart. That you would renew our mind and that you would do it in the name and for the fame of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.